Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hi, CBC family. We're the Pennington family. I'm Mike. I'm Carissa. I'm Melody. Here is a blessing from our family to yours. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a great Sunday. Everybody, how's it going this morning? All right, there's a little pause there. That made me awkward for me. Uh, Last week in our numbers series, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine in the area, and he said, what's your summer series? And I said, numbers. And he looked at me and said, on purpose. And I said, yes. So we are wrapping it up today. Thank you for journeying through the book of Numbers with us. I'm very excited. We're in chapter 21. If you're a type A and want to impress your friends and look ahead. Okay, we'll get there in just a second. But before we do, we're going to start how we start at CBC each Sunday before we open the word. We, we know that our culture is just naturally critical. That we put ourselves in the center and critique things that aren't all about us. But the problem with that is it's not the currency of the church. That as the church, we're called to see where God is and celebrate those things. And so this morning, we start just by acknowledging that we're different than the culture around us. By acknowledging that, that, that God has brought us here. And instead of entering into this space and place with a critical spirit, we want to enter into this place and contribute to the conversation of faith. We want to come here this morning and say, God, what do you have for me? Because you have something. Because the Holy Spirit is near and active and illuminates the character of God from the word of God. And so today we're going to start just by distancing ourselves from the criticalness of culture and asking where God is moving this morning. So we're just going to pray. I'll ask if you're comfortable that you say a silent prayer and just ask that the Holy Spirit might move in your spirit this morning and, and show you more of the goodness of God as we march through numbers. And I'll ask that you pray for me that God uses preparation to uh, just show us more of his character. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can be here. Like Andy said, there's so many other places we can be, but this is a better place. This is a place where we get to celebrate things that really matter and we're reminded of the things that have eternal value. This is a place that gives life that lasts. And so as we open the scriptures this morning, Holy Spirit, draw near. Holy Spirit, encourage us and teach us and guide us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you show us more of the character of God in the ways that we need to see it, that it might be impactful on our today and tomorrow. If you're comfortable, just take a couple seconds and ask the Holy Spirit to show you God this morning as we open his scriptures to guide, lead, and direct you. And ask that you pray for me, um, that God might use my preparation and um, this message to just show people how good he is this morning.
pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Numbers 21, go there if you want to. We'll get there in just a second. We have dealt with so many complaints from the people of God this summer. It's been a summer of complaining, and, and this is one of the last ones in the book. And what I think it does today is it ties a bow on the book of Numbers, and it kind of shows us a, a big picture, the point of the book of Numbers in the first place, what God is telling us through this constant battle with his people. Because at this point, they've been wandering for 40 years, 40 years. They're close to the promised land, but they're not there yet. It really is all about this idea or this theme of getting to the destination that they so much desire to go to. And I started thinking about how, as a culture, well, me personally, how much I enjoy destinations and not journeys, Right? Before I travel anywhere in my car, I look up at least three different maps on how to get there to make sure I'm not going to run into traffic. I, I used to live, a couple months ago, I moved from East Dallas. And the problem with East Dallas is there's a road called 635. I don't know if you know it or not. It is the highway to hell, everybody. And it's backed up all the time. There's a section of 635 from 35 to 75. It's about six miles. And they created this tollway. You get to go underground. It's called the Texas Autobahn, right? There are no cops. You just do you. It's amazing. The problem is it it's, has a, a dynamic pricing index, which means if you want to go in rush hour, which I do, it's going to cost you $10 one way if you get on at 35 and get off at 75. Guess what Chuck did every day, right? <laughs> I'm willing to pay to get to my destination. I don't want to be deterred. It was about two years ago. I had an Uber pick me up from the airport. And I'm the kind of guy that when he picks me up, I look up the map as well just to make sure that I'm getting there the best way I can. And I saw his map and it, it was going a different direction than I wanted to to my home. And I said, don't go that way. This other way is two minutes faster. And he said, I'm going to go this way. And I said, don't go that way. This way is two minutes faster. We got into it. He pulled his car over on the highway and we had a conversation. I said, it's my house. I know how to get there the quickest. We probably argued for three minutes. It was a net loss, everybody. <laughs> but I, I want to get where I'm going as quickly as possible. The goal of going is the destination in the first place. And look, I don't think that's just me. I think that's a we issue. I think that's a, a cultural issue. I used to lead trips to Mexico with high school kids. We'd be in the van for an hour and 15 minutes, and, and every time, someone would be like, hey, are we, how close are we to Mexico? And I would say every time, five minutes. And some could be like, cool, <laughs> what? Go back to geography. Five minutes later, like, it's been about five minutes. Are we almost? And I just keep saying five minutes again and again and again. And by the time we got to Odessa, they caught on. Um, in 2014, uh, I remember reading the story. There was uh, a map that Yahoo was going to put out. And you're saying, what is Yahoo? It's an old search engine. But there was a map that Yahoo was going to put out. And actually what it did was it, it curated routes not based on efficiency but beauty. It started in Spain. And so you could look it up and it would say, hey, look, you could go this way and it's the fastest. But using different pictures from different places people uploaded, it'd say this way is much more beautiful. And it, it normally added about 12% onto your journey. If you're from Flower Mound and you want to go from here to, uh, I don't know, Whole Foods, you got to hit Colorado first. So it's going to add a lot more <laughs> to find beauty onto the journey. But, but you know where that app is today? Dead. 
You know why? Because nobody used it because we want to get where we're going. There was Outdoorsies, an RV rental site, and a month ago, a month ago, they came out and said the most dangerous city in the United States to drive in is Dallas. Six feet five, highway to hell, everybody, you know? They said you're 14% more likely to get into a crash in Dallas than in other major cities. Do you know why? SUVs. But secondly, <laughs> is we want to go where we want to go, and we want to get there very, very quickly. I guess my question today, I think some of the text that's going to drive us today is simply, what do we lose when all we seek to gain is getting there? And, and look, it's not just a, a we get in cars situation. We do this as a church. I grew up in the mid-90s, in the early 2000s. Christianity that, that loved uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye and the boy band Free Britney era of the early 2000s, okay? And, and, and I came to a faith in a Jesus who saved me from a destination for another destination. And that was how they talked about my faith. All true, all good, maybe not the whole story. We do sermon series on revelation and end times and when will we get where we're supposed to be. But what's the cost? What's the cost of only focusing on a destination? Our story today deals with the Israelites at the end of a very long journey when they just wanted to get there. So chapter 21 starts like this. Before we get to the main part of our text, starting in verse 4, you got to understand what's happening before in verse 1. It said, when the Canaanite king Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that the Israelites were approaching along the road of Athrium, he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoner, verse 2. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will deliver this people into our hands, we will utterly destroy their cities. Verse 3, the Lord listened to the voice of Israel, and he delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place was called Hormah. A couple really familiar things there and why we're going here in the first place. It says in verse 3, when they got there and the name of the place was called Hormah, th that place had a specific meaning if you're tracking with this series. It's not the first time that we see that word. The first time we saw that city was in Numbers 14. Numbers 14 was the biggest loss the people of Israel faced in their journey. It's when they, they didn't trust God and God said, you're going to wander for 40 more years. Numbers 14 is when they went into the land of Canaan and God said, I'm going to show you what this land is like. You're supposed to say, wow, they're big, but wow, God is bigger because what have I done for the last year and a half? But instead, they came out and said, while these guys are big, we should go back to bondage. God didn't like that. And he said, man, you're, not, you're missing the point of this, and so you're going to wander for a while till you learn to trust me. And they said, well, now we do. We don't want to wander. Let's just go attack anyway. Moses said, don't do that. Don't do that. God's not with you. You don't understand the heart of what God is saying. You just don't want the punishment. And so they attacked anyway at the end of chapter 14, and they get utterly decimated. And it said that the, the Canaanites beat them back to the place of Hormah. That, that word literally in the original text, that word means destruction. That story had been told for a generation. And so they get back to the same place, knowing full well what happened generation before. And this time, instead of destruction, they found victory. That's a cool moment. This is one of the better days in the wanderings for the Israelites. This is a place of victory where they would never have had victory before. This is a big deal. It's almost cowboy season, so then my analogies start, buckle up, it's every week for the next 18. Um, but you know, the Cowboys play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the first week of the season. It'd be like if we beat the Tom Brady-led Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers 
I don't need to watch the rest of the season. We've already won the Super Bowl, everybody, you know? The high that we would ride for the next five days before we lose to, I don't know, Philadelphia badly would be amazing. They're on the highest high they've felt in a generation. Also, this is the first time in the history of the Israelite people that they defeated anybody from Canaan, the place that they were inevitably going to take. This is a big moment. And so naturally, on the heels of this moment, what do you think they're saying? They're probably saying, let's go. We've made it. There's the promised land. It was defeat. Now it's victory. We finally beat them. It's right there. I can taste it, touch it, feel it, see it. Let's go get the land we were promised. And then verse 4 happens. Read with me. It says, Then they traveled from Mount Hor by the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So just so we're all on the same page, when it said they traveled, it didn't mean like they thought this was an easier or better way. You have to remember that when they traveled, they were led. And what they were led by was the Spirit of God. Fire by night, cloud by day. They were led by the Spirit of God. It wasn't their choice. They didn't look it up on Google Maps and say, this way is more beautiful, let's take a right. They were on the cusp of the promised land, the border of the thing that had been promised for generations on generations on generations. The pillar of fire is right there and the cloud of God moves right and says, we're going to go around, not through. And they said, but, but we, we just had this victory. Why are we going this way? We are right there. If you actually compound the frustration with the fact that it said they traveled from Mount Hor by the road to the Red Sea. You know where they started this journey? The Red Sea. You know how gut-punching that is to travel for 40 years and end up where you began? I don't know, five or six years ago, I was in Madison, Wisconsin. I, my buddy got married up there. And we're do, I did the wedding and was part of the wedding and the next day we go and just travel in the city. And I live by a simple code. If you're going to be wrong, be strong. And so I remember we were walking in the city. And uh, I didn't know where I was. But they didn't let me acknowledge that to my wife and friends. And so she said, where are we going to this one restaurant? And I said, oh, it's this way. And she said, are you sure? I said, of course I'm sure. So we walk. Five minutes, ten minutes. <laughs> I start thinking to myself, not out loud, just to myself, this is not Okay. I look up on one of my maps and I realize we've gone in the complete opposite direction of where we're supposed to go. So I look up to my wife and I said, man, I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. No, I didn't. <laughs> I said, not at all. I'm not an idiot. I, I look up to my wife and I think I'm going to turn right here and then take another right. And she said, you mean go back where we were? I was like, ah, oh, I couldn't slide that one past you. <laughs> Maybe. She said, exactly how far out of the way are we? I said, I think, I think all the way, <laughs> you know. And the worst part of traveling back right where we came from was passing the place that we started, being like, oh yeah, this is where I made the mistake in the first place. That was a gut punch. So they started and went back by the Red Sea. But it's not just that they went back to where they started. This way took them through something called the, des the Desert of Araba. And the Desert of Araba was difficult. So it wasn't just that God took a right turn and said, hey, we're not going to get there quite yet. It's that God took a right turn and said, we're going to go a much harder, less beautiful route. It was rocky. It was arid. It was full of snakes. It was a bad place to be. There was a British soldier who, uh, named T.E. Lawrence who wrote about it. He served in the British Army, and he fought in the Arab Revolt against the Ottoman Empire from 1916 to 1919. Um, he's who loosely the, the novel Lawrence of Arabia is based on. And he wrote about this region. And he says about this region, 
It's hopeless and sadness deeper than all the open deserts we have crossed. There is something sinister, something actively evil in this snake-devoted land. This is where God led his people instead of to the destination. So, so naturally, his people are angry. Naturally, his people feel beat down. And so they said, let's go around the land we're supposed to be in. And the people say, but the people became impatient along the way. No kidding. And they spoke against God and against Moses. They say, why haven't you brought us up? Why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water. And we detest this worthless food. The word there, when it said the people became impatient, it literally, in the original, it means like the soul of the people was sucked out of them. This isn't just, I'm mad. This is, I've got nothing left and I'm beat down. Like this is a soul punch that I can't, respond from, I don't understand why we're doing it. It's the same phrasing that's used in the Samson and Delilah uh, narrative. And she keeps asking, and keeps asking, and keeps asking him. And it nags, and it nags, and it nags, and it nags. And slowly, it starts beating him down, and down, and down, and down. But we have no idea what that's like, do we, right? And so over time, they've just been told, you're not going to get there, you're not going to get there, you're not going to get there. They see it, you're not going to get there. And it says literally their souls were tired and being sucked from their people. I think much like us, they just wanted to get where they're going. Because they left Egypt and God promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. They left Egypt for the promise of something better. And they always thought all along that there's something better was this place. And they weren't there yet. So they get, they get so frustrated and so tired, they finally take what God had given them and they ascribe no value to it. And so they say, there's no bread, there's no water, and this food is worthless. It's a dangerous place to be. We've seen it every week. It's a dangerous place to be when we take good things God gives us and we say that it's no good to me. Because sometimes when, when we want to get somewhere and we're not there and we're so frustrated, all the good things no longer feel good anymore. You know? And so as we've read through this book, as we've read through this 38-year wanderings from chapter 10 to chapter now 21 this summer, we've seen a threefold pattern to kind of their complaining. Just as an aside, if you, if you want to find out if a culture is one of complaining or what leads to a culture of complaining, I think it's Pretty much just a problem present will cause you to misremember uh, the past, and so you'll only see a fearful future, right? So you have a problem in the present, and then because of that, you think, well, Egypt wasn't that bad, and then you think, well, if it's, if it's this bad now, how bad is it going to be tomorrow? So a problem present reimagines the past and only presents problems for the future. I think we see that in most relationships that fail. I think we see that in most things that divide. Is your problem now? Is different than the way it used to be, and it's the only way it can be going forward. Any culture that does that is one that's setting you up for division and complaint. Whether it's a church culture, a family culture, news media outlets, all of that problem present reimagines the past so that you have no hope in the future is what Israel did again and again and again and again. This thing that you gave us, this food that you gave us, this, this food that God, you created only for us and literally rains down from heaven is worthless. You gotta be in a dark place to get there. But we're not that different from them. Because what's really hard is in frustrating places when we don't understand, in frustrating places when we can't make light of things, in frustrating places we stop seeing the goodness of God. 
and we interpret everything in our world from a point of frustration and pain. And that's what Israel kept doing. And so we're going to back up the lens a little bit. This is the last time we see them complain in the book of Numbers. And so once again, they have a complaint against God. They have a complaint against Moses. And what we see is God respond like he has time and time again. And so in the next verse, it says, The Lord sent venomous snakes among the people, and they bit people, and many of Israel died. Some of your translations there say fiery snakes. Just depends. I think we all know that the most feared and terrible thing in the world is snakes, right? I mean, that's just a, a universal truth. So now imagine them on fire. <laughs> and, and when it says fiery snakes or venomous snakes, it, it, it's a metonymy there. It, it's what's pointing to they weren't literally on fire, if you believe it. They were actually biting the people and their bite caused excruciating pain. Uh, there's a, uh, a Schmidt scale of painful insect bites. You can look it up. It's actually very interesting. There's a, an entomologist who works for the Bee Research Center in Arizona, real place. And, and I guess he's not wired like me. And a while ago, he said, you know, I've been stung by bees, but how does that compare to being stung by other things? And so he said, let's find out. And he started traveling and he created something called the Schmidt scale of pain, right? First of all, you're in deep waters when you're creating your own scale of pain. And so he created the Schmidt scale of pain. And over the next decade, he actually has a book out about this. He traveled the world and he's been bitten over a thousand times by over 85 species of stinging and biting insects. And then he writes in a metonymous way about what it feels like using the honeybee as kind of the base pain level. He has it through one through four. Honeybee is number two. Let me read you a couple of them. I just found this fascinating. He says, the red fire ant native to South South America is a one. He describes it as sharp, sharp, sudden, mildly alarming. Smith writes, it's like walking across shag carpet and reaching for the light switch. Oh, great. Let's up the scale. Tarantula hawk which clocks in at a number four. Blinding, fierce, shockingly electric, a running hair dryer has just been dropped in your bubble bath. <laughs> Let's go with, this is what he described as one of the two most painful. This is the bullet ant. Pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over, uh, like walking over firing charcoal with a three-inch nail embedded in your heel. <laughs> Or my personal favorite, the warrior wasp found in South America. This man went to South America to let something sting him, everybody. He said torture. It's like you're chained in the flow of an active volcano. Why did I start this list? (laughs) And so when the the writer of scripture is talking about these firing serpents, he, he simply is using a figure of speech to say they're biting and it's stinging a lot. It's really, really, really hurting. And here's what we need to know is that when he's talking about this, this is kind of indigenous to the time, to the place. That same guy, T.E. Lawrence, the, the uh, British soldier that fought in this area in the 20th century, 1916 to 1919, he would along to talk about the region like this. He said, the place of the snakes, which had been with us since our first entry into the place, today rose to a memorable height and became a terror. This year, this year the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders, cobras and black snakes, By night, movement was dangerous, and at last we found it necessary to walk with sticks, beating the bushes while we stepped warily on our bare feet. They got so on our nerves that the boldest of us feared to touch the ground at all. This is where Israel is. And and that leads me to this point. We're looking at the Old Testament, 
And it'd be a really bad thing to do to interpret this and say, see, if you don't see God's goodness, he's going to send snakes for you. That's not true. So what the writer's doing is he's tying cause and effect to the purpose or what God wants them to see. And so some authors say that, well, it was a plague that God just allowed the snakes that were already there to start biting him. Some think that God sent the snakes there to, show him, to teach him a lesson. He can come down on either side. But the point here is that what God is doing is using what's happening around them to show them that they're not grateful for what God has done in the first place. And, and this is what God does in our world. We live in a broken world and we feel the weight of that all the time through pain. And what God does is, although he's not the cause of that pain all the time, most of the time, I'd argue, we still feel it. And he lets us feel it if we choose to pursue means, ways, methods, mediums outside of him. We call it the wrath of God. When I make bad decisions, he lets me feel the weight of the consequences of my bad decisions. And so what I think the author's trying to do is say they kept making bad decisions and not trusting in God. And so they didn't get the grace and the mercy and the love and the compassion of God. And so what God does is he, he uses painful situations to teach us. Tim Keller would say that he never lets a pain go unused. C.S. Lewis writes about it in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he said, we can ignore pleasure but God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. It's the idea that God uses this moment to show them a bigger truth, that they'd forgotten that God was good. So in verse seven, he goes on to say, the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he would take away the snakes from us. And you see some, a modicum of growth here. There are seven different complaints in the chapters we've been in. This is the seventh. This is the first time that they actually repent on their own, that Moses didn't say, let me do it for you. They come to Moses and say, oh, you know what? We've been here before. I think God can fix this for us. We've messed up. God uses a place of pain to show them that he still is good, to show them that what they're trusting is in isn't okay. And so God uses this moment to, I think, make a bigger picture statement from what the book of Numbers is all about. And this is a solution. It says in verse eight, the Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous snake and set it on a pole. When anyone who's bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it on a pole so that if any snake had bitten someone, when he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. I think what's really interesting um, about this text is normally in the scriptures, God warns people against making images. It's one of the big 10 in the Old Testament. The last time we see people make images was a golden calf. When Moses went up to the mountain, came back down, they're worshiping this calf. God is not very happy. Moses loses his temper, breaks some rock stones on the ground, and then he has the priests literally run through the people with swords on their thighs and 3,000 die. That's not a good day. God doesn't like when people worship images. I think one of the reasons why this text intrigues me is God doesn't like that, but here he says to Moses, make an image and have people look at it. And we have to ask the question, why? And so first and foremost, let's acknowledge something, that we are a visual people. 
We're a visual people. God made us to be visual people. And I know that from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, it starts with us looking at, walking with, and worshiping God. And it ends with us looking at, walking with, and worshiping God. God made us to look at what we worship. Sin ripped that away from us. So naturally, we're a visual people. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, as God delivers, they say, hey, stack these stones up here. And so every time you walk by and you see this, worship me. That's why most of us learn through visual cues. That's why my job is so difficult. I just talk for a while. You're like, I don't know what he said, but I laughed, you know? I think we're a visual people. It's how God designed us. God designed us to worship things that we see. It's natural. It's not a bad thing. The problem is what's bad is when we worship what we see and that thing that we see isn't God. Actually, in this story, this snake on a pole delivers them. They, they take it with them. And a few hundred years later, it talks about in, a, in I think the Hezekiah narrative, he's a king. It says that they started worshiping this serpent on a stick because that's what we do. We worship what we see. And the problem is not that we're a visual people or that we worship what we see. The problem is if we don't see God and we worship what we see, it can't hold up under the weight of our worship. So we're a visual people and God says make this because what he's doing here in the final time they complain, they never complain after this in the book of Numbers. In the final time they complain, what he's trying to do is teach them a bigger principle that he's been trying to teach them all along. And so he said, anyone who looks at this, that word look there is, is, is often translated with the idea of not just see but believe, right? And you got to see and believe because he says, when anyone is bitten, looks at it. And something we have to note, this is just a side note that I, I, I really enjoy, is God doesn't just take away the snakes. I wish he did. I'm sure they wish he did. God doesn't just take away the snakes. He leaves them there. And he says, when you're bitten, I think what he's trying to get at in this narrative, what he's trying to get at in this weird story of bronze snakes and idols, I think what he's trying to get at is a bigger picture of what we're supposed to be and do in our world, the point that Israel missed all throughout the wanderings in the book of Numbers, that, that, that life will be hard. Snakes throughout the Old Testament symbolize sin. They did from the garden to this point. And so he, he leaves the snakes there, but he says, when you find your pla- yourself in a place where you have been bitten, look. So this idea for them and for us now that the snakes are going to go somewhere just frankly isn't necessarily true. I think we live in a broken world where snakes abound. Unless you move to Ireland, let's go, everybody, you know? It's the idea that he says, when you find yourself in broken, hurting places, look to something and he's painting a picture, he's giving them an image of what's ultimately going to save them. He's reminding them of what they have in the first place that they've missed for the last 40 years. He says, so when the snakes bite you, look, and that word look again carries with it this nuance of belief. It's, it's not some divine eye spy as they wander through the wilderness. Not only do you look, but you believe that you believe that this thing that you look at can actually deliver you. What he's doing is he's setting the table for ultimately them to see Jesus in this text as they kept reading it. That's why in our liturgy this morning, we read a text where Jesus is sitting with a Pharisee and he says, I have to be lifted up like that snake. Because ultimately, 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 what delivers you is 
me. He's making a case for what they've missed all along, which is the purpose of their wanderings isn't the destination. It's the person that goes with them. He's missing, they're missing the point of what God is trying to show them throughout this entire wandering section. And so what we see in our text is this bigger picture when you back it up that God is using this moment to show them the ultimate point of the people of God. This is what he does sometimes, you know? Let me give you another quick example of this. It's in Genesis. You know the story of, of Abram when God says, hey, you're going to take your son, the son whom you love, your only son. You're going to walk him up a mountain and you're going to sacrifice him. That's a hard text, really hard text. And, and you've got to do something with it if you believe the Bible is true. And there's a couple things you can do with it. You've got to ask why that text is in there. But ultimately, you've got to see that text through the entire lens of Scripture so here's one thing I know, that God would never let that happen because God abhors child sacrifice. It's one of the reasons he gives why he's going to judge the land of Canaan, why Israel's going to just wipe them off the face of the earth, is because they've been killing kids and God's not okay with that. And so he abhors it. But what you see as you read the lens of scripture later on is that God has a place and purpose for that moment to happen. That, most scholars point to, is the same mountain that Jesus was crucified on. So if you're a Jewish person, you look back and say, Oh, this story that we've known always foreshadowed this story that was ultimately good. This story that we've known ultimately pointed towards God's redemption, even though we couldn't see it in the moment. It's why my little boy is 10 weeks old, and I put a basketball in his crib all the time, because he doesn't know it yet, but he's going to the NBA, everybody, you know? And he said, I didn't know what that was, but I see what my dad was doing there. Right, building my retirement. So I think we see nuances of this all throughout the scripture. So the story about bronze, snakes, and idols, I think all along God's using it to point to the bigger picture of ultimately the point and purpose of the people of God. And in this specific context, when we talk through Israel, what they've missed all along, all along through the book of Numbers, was that what was going to save them was never Canaan. <laughs> what was going to save them was the God who went with them. What they missed, what they missed, what we missed when we focus so much on going to a destination is that our destination is not a place that wasn't for them, but it was a person all along. It was the God who went with them. Sometimes what we miss when we focus on a destination is that our purpose, our place as followers of Jesus is rooted in and defined by the God who goes with us. And Jesus said, hey, here's the purpose that I'm lifted up like this snake was because I ultimately deliver. That's incredibly freeing because we're a people that often define progress by if we get to the place we want to go, whether that's in our marriages or our jobs or on the road or our spiritual lives. But I think over and over and over again, what the Bible teaches us is the purpose of us as a people is being present with the God who created us. Whether it's Adam and Eden, whether it's Israel wandering through the desert, whether it's us here now, that our destination is found in who Jesus is. That's why when we talk about one day in heaven, I've been in so many conversations about where heaven is. I don't know, but I know who it's with. I think heaven is defined by the full presence of God being fully felt to fully bless all of the creation. And ultimately what we see in the book of Numbers is the missed point, that the people never fully found that the purpose of them was to live with God wherever they were, that's why we say in Numbers, not all who wander are lost because they never really were in the first place. And in a culture so fixated on the destination, I wonder if we miss the point and purpose, which is Jesus, wherever we're at. That's why 
Paul writes in Philippians 3, and he says, no matter where I am or what I've done, I've done it all, I've been it all. He says, no matter what, nothing, nothing compares to the far surpassing knowledge of Jesus. We are a people made to be, live, flourish, thrive in the presence of the God who created us. And so I think in the middle of this text, the last time they complain, he finally shows them, do you know what delivers you? Me, not the place. It's right there. I'm right here. Don't miss it. I think it's incredibly freeing as a people. Whether COVID flares back up again and we go online or whether it doesn't, whether we meet here or we meet somewhere else, whether you're in this state or the next state, online or not, what I think we learned from the book of Numbers, the bigger picture of the book of Numbers is ultimately that it's not about the destination, it's about who goes with us, that our destination as followers of Jesus is the person of Jesus. Now and for eternity. That's incredibly free because I'm not waiting on something to be fully who God created me to be. I'm not waiting on somebody to find redemption and restoration. And sure, ultimately, we're going to get to a place and that's good. Places are good, but they're not ultimate. <laughs> and so this story reminds the people of Israel what they should have seen all along. What we've been saying since the beginning, the blessing that ties this whole series together found in number six. It's the blessing of the high priest to the people of God. The one that they said every time they gathered together, every single time they got together as a group of people, they said these words out loud, may the Lord bless you and keep you, may he make his face shine upon you and may he be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. This wasn't a hope and a prayer. It was a reminder that the Lord is with you so he'll bless you and keep you. The Lord is with you, he'll make his face to shine upon you. The Lord is with you, he'll be gracious to you. The Lord will lift his countenance upon you and he will give you peace in the desert or in the promised land. I think for us as a people, we need that reminder time and time again. And in a culture of complaining, we need to be reminded that we have all we need because Jesus is our destination. That's the book of Numbers. It's so easy to get sidetracked by their stuff. Well, I'm not there yet and I will one day. Well, the study's not here from the mail yet. Well, I, I don't have internet connection. Figure it out, fill in the blank. Jesus says, I'm what you need. And as long as we have Jesus, <laughs> I think we can be the people of God. And so as we look at the end of this series and look forward to what happens next, I think it does a few things for us as we talk about our faith in this way. Well, one, I think it helps us differentiate from good things to ultimate things. Good things are church on Sunday mornings. Good things are promised land in Israel. Good things are heaven one day. Ultimate things are Jesus with us. It puts in perspective those things. It, it doesn't let discouragement set in if life isn't what you think it's going to be or where you think it's going to be. So for years, like I said, I just moved to Highland Village. And for years, I mean, since I was like 15, I grew up in Double Oak, like two miles from here. My parents still live there. I'm now learning that's beautiful. For a while, I thought it meant that I failed, right? It has nothing to do with you, <laughs> you know? And I always thought I was going to live in New York. And, and when I got married, I told my wife, I'm going to live in New York. She said, so am I. I said, great, this is going to work. And I showed my twin brother my new house about a month ago. And so we're loading up in my parents' house, and I'm driving him to Highland Village. It's about a 10-minute drive. Eight the way I drive. I want to get places. And... And the whole 10 minutes, <laughs> he sat down next to me. He just started and said, hey, Charlie, wow, man, what would 16-year-old Chuck say to you right now? Do you feel like you failed? And he just, for 10 minutes, let me know that I have not lived in the expectation I set of myself because I wasn't in the right place. 
He said, because it feels to me like you failed. Like, does that hurt you a little bit? Are you sad? Like, you should be. This is my twin brother. This is how we communicate. All he was saying over and over was, I love you so much. <laughs> just in different ways. And it's just a lot of processing of, man, I, it's not about where I end up. And that's an immature way to view it. It's not about whether I'm in a city I thought I was going to live in, or it's not about whether I live in East Dallas, or Highland Village, or Double Oak. It's not about that. I'm where I'm supposed to be, fully present, fully active, fully participating in God's work because Jesus is with me. And so often we use destination as an escape, not to engage, not to trust God. And so I'd simply ask you this morning, (laughs) if you don't feel like where you're supposed to be with God, maybe the question is, what am I supposed to be doing with where God has me? Because he's with you. Is with you. And then secondly, I think one of the bigger stories in the book of Numbers is simply the necessity for reminders for the people of God. And so if you read these stories, if you're anything like me, you might read them and say, these guys are stupid. They keep forgetting. How could they keep forgetting? They are really, really hard-headed and thick-skulled. They don't understand what God, how can you be led by God by fire every day and then be like, God's not good enough? I think what this text is supposed to do is just hold a mirror up to our faces and say, if we don't have reminders of God's goodness, we will let our current situation and circumstance circumvent the goodness of God that's already out there. So I'd simply ask from this book overall, what are your reminders? Because if you don't have them, you won't see the goodness of God. That happens again and again and again and again. What are your reminders that God has provided? What are your reminders that God is with you? That could be anything from a Bible verse on a mirror to a kid that you look at in the face every morning to fill in the blank. That is a question we ask as the people of God. What are your reminders that God is good? One of them for me is showing up here on a Sunday morning and reminding myself that there are more important things and better things. Reminding myself that God is good, even in really tough parts of life. Because so often and so quickly, we forget just like Israel. And and so today, we're going to do one of those. We end with communion. Communion is a reminder of the goodness of God. Communion is a reminder that God saved. Communion is a reminder that God is here. Communion is a reminder that what we have and what we need, we have in Jesus. And so... Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he went to the cross, he said, I'm going somewhere for you, and don't forget that. And he picked up some bread. He said, this is my body. It will be broken for you. You need reminders. So every time, every time you're together and you eat bread together, every time, remember my sacrifice for you. And he said, take and eat. And then he held up some wine. And he said, this is a symbol of my blood that will be poured out for you, spilled for you. So yours doesn't have to be. Every time you get together and you drink this wine, you need a reminder of what I did. So drink and remember. Because here's the truth of the book of Numbers. We're a people that need reminding that all we need is the presence of God. That all we need is the person of Jesus. What happens when our destination becomes our goal? 
we forget our purpose in the present and the power of Christ. So may we be a church, no matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, that celebrates the goodness of God because Jesus is with us. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for just the book of Numbers, that journey they went through to teach us things that we often forget as well. I'm thankful. I'm thankful that we have access to you. I'm thankful that you've given us what we need. I'm thankful that ultimately (laughs) Jesus is our destination. I pray that as we figure out what that looks like in our lives, that you give us boldness. I pray that you confirm that truth in our life, that you encourage us. If life feels like we took a right turn and we're not where we're supposed to be, that you are with us. And that's enough. And I pray that on the road to where we're going, we're reminded that our place and our purpose is found in the person of Jesus. And that we might be encouraged we might be the people of God wherever we're at because people need to see the hope that's found in Jesus. Let us be those people. Give us those opportunities. And we pray these things the same.